He was born in 1809 on January 4th. Lord Prometheus, I am Hercules. I am a child of Zeus. Apollo wanted an oracle to predict the future. So this is a braille note here, isn't it? Follow your dreams. That's right. Fight for it. Welcome back to the Ohio State School for the Blind podcast. This is our first podcast of the new year. How you guys doing? Um, this is me, Andre. Latrell. And Mr. Kelly. And I'm, we're going to tell you about what we have in store for you. World Braille Day. Mrs. Finley is going to talk to you guys about World Braille Day. On World Braille Day, we did a lot of things. We had a trivia contest. We had a lot of activities and games for the kids to play. Um, and we had a lot of fun. The country of the month is Greece. Me, Mr. Kelly, Latrell. And Mr. Kelly's fifth period class wrote Greek myth scripts, and we're going to be retelling the stories. Yeah, thank you, Andre. And our alumni focus of the month is Larry Smith, a very special alumni focus. Mr. Smith went to the Ohio State School for the Blind from 1944 to 1960, and he attended both schools for the blind, the one downtown, and the campus that we're currently on. All right, let's get this show on the road. I hope you enjoy Go Panthers! Oh my god! That's your buddy right there. Ronnie Kirk! Yeah. That's a board of trade. That's this one here. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm looking And you can feel what the model feels like. Yeah. Pop the building. Oh, wow. Keep on going up, son, right there. That's the top. That's a very good item. And we're able to, you know, dim a little light. Oh, yeah. Pandora gonna rock out listening to some music. Hey! King Midas has the ears of a donkey. This enraged King Midas. Let me free. Long ago, in ancient times, super divine beings known as the Titans ruled the earth. Their king, a Titan named Kronos, was a cruel and heartless man and a cruel gambit. He swallowed his own kids to keep his power. But his lovely wife, Rey, the queen of the Titans, swapped the sixth and final kid with a rock, forcing Kronos to vomit up the rest of his kids who were still growing within him. After a long and gruesome battle, the gods of Olympus usurped the Titans, and the new king, Lord Zeus, would go on to establish a new pantheon. To the Titans, were they killed? No, no, immortals cannot be killed. But you will learn soon enough there are fates worse than death. This is the tale of Prometheus, Zeus, and the gift of fire. Prometheus, the Titan of forethought, molded humans from clay. This was during the time when the Olympians ruled. Humans at that time were thought to be simple-minded cavemen with no chance of evolving. This enraged Kings who thought the humans should worship the gods that gave them life and allowed them to continue living. But Prometheus thought differently. Prometheus and the humans were friends and Prometheus felt like the humans just need a little push in the right direction to become better, greater, to evolve into the humans he knew they could be. Great gods above, it's cold out here. Will it ever get better? I sure hope so. I can't keep living like this. How could those that come before us worship those prophetic gods? They've done nothing for us but cause us pain and suffering. Do they really even exist? Can you truly believe in being the only hurt? Hey, not all deities are tyrants. I'm Prometheus, and against King Zeus's wishes, I gift you fire. You dare. You dare go against my rule, Prometheus? I let you stay free after you turned tail and betrayed your fellow titans. But now, this is unacceptable. Now, you face my wrath. Forgive me. Please, have mercy. Silence, fool. 
I don't want to hear any more from your Tratorius Maul. Now, fear my power and take your punishment. I shall cast you to an island and you will be chained there forever, with no chance of freedom. Lord Zeus. Silence, Titan. I'm not finished. Each day, you shall have your liver eaten from your gut. Your eyes will be clawed from their sockets. And due to your immortality, your body shall regenerate each day to start the process over. This is my law. And so, vote it be. Wait. Curse Prometheus remained on that island for over 1,000 years and would have stayed that way if not for a particularly strong demigod arriving at his lifelong prison. Lord Prometheus, I am Hercules. I am a child of Zeus. Leave. But wait, I must. I said leave, boy. I want nothing to do with the other Olympians. Just leave me be. I cannot do that, Lord Prometheus. I do not agree with your punishment, and neither do most of the other gods. I am here to free you. Will you accept my aid? You don't jest. Yes, I shall. But I must warn you, the world has changed. Let me free. I met Larry and his friend Steve Weirich in the lobby at the yeah. School for the Blind. It was morning. Steve, yeah. how you doing? I'm Steve. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Sir? Morning. Hello. Larry Smith. How you doing? Coming at you here. Fine. How you doing? All right, sir. Nice hey, to meet you. Good to meet you. Well, tell you what, we're going to start out up in the computer lab and then work our way from there. How's that? That sounds fine. Sounds fine. All right. Showed Larry some technology and we chatted for a bit before Larry did a presentation to some students and then we took a tour of OSSB. Okay. And they're doing some things for the blind to try to help navigate around buildings. This is Steve Wyrick who I'm talking to as well, who has traveled up here with Larry Smith and is very interested in doing things with the blind community and, and coming up with more ways to make things accessible. Have you seen a Braille note before? I, a friend of mine has one. I looked at it, sort of. Okay. Did you use Braille a lot when you were here? Oh, Slayton bars, Braille writers. Yeah. Did, did you have to do uh, math? On the slate? Yep. So it looks like it's got the keys the same as on, on the Braille rider, Tiber? Yep. Yep. Okay. It's got the same keys that you have on the Braille rider. Um, yeah, one, two, three. <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to write was try to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. As we continued to chat, our conversation steered around Larry's work as a darkroom technician. So what did you do at the hospital? I was a darkroom technician. I developed all the x-ray films that came in. So were they were they labeled when they came in about who's went with what? Or did you guys have to put some labels on during the process to keep everything organized? Well, we had what they called flasher cards. What you did, a corner of the film would fit in this thing. You'd, the card would have the name of the patient and whatever else was on there. You'd push down on that. It, it, it would make a click, click, and uh, you know, it was automatic. And then uh, you'd uh, just develop the film. I worked in Grandview's employ for 40 years. It was an osteopathic hospital. When I started out in 1962, I started working at Grandview. Ajne wants to show you her iPhone. Ajne is a junior. Take your finger and swipe around. You'll find apps. I'm like, you double tap to open like, one of them. Take your finger and then, and then you go over something. So tap twice and it'll open. Like that is a double tap. Pandora gonna rock out and listen to some music. Hey! There we go. Whoops, cut off. Yeah. And then to make that stop, it's a, a two finger double tap. Really? Yes. What do you mean? Tap it twice, two finger double tap. There, there you go. go. There you go. Hey. Look at that. Thank you. Hey! This is Taylor's retelling of the myth Donkey Ears. There was a contest between Pan and Apollo. King Midas said that Pan's music was better 
Then Apollo said that King Midas's ears were too small to hear properly. Then Apollo made King Midas's ears into donkey ears. After that, King Midas wanted Pan to help him, but Pan had a nervous glance and looked back at King Midas and said that he couldn't help him because he was afraid he would get donkey ears. King Midas tried hiding his ears by wearing big hats, bulky scarves, and heavy helmets. The only person who knew was his barber. He made his barber promise that he wouldn't tell a, sing a soul about his ears. Then his barber went up a mountain and dug a hole. He looked around to make sure no one was there. He whispered in the hole, King Midas has the ears of a donkey. After that, pieces of echo were going all over the kingdom, and then everyone knew King Midas' secret. I took Larry and Steve on a tour of OSSB. Let's listen in as Larry shares some of his memories as we walk around the building. We had wrestling with our man. We tried football, but that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. We tried it. I remember one time, the funniest thing that ever happened, I took off running and uh, I heard this guy ahead of me. And uh, I went as hard as I could, grabbed him, tackled him. and uh, was a strong guy. Yeah. Hey, Dan, I got the gold ball and... and the beeper ball. Do you guys have a swimming pool here? Yeah, we do. Because we didn't used to have one when I went to school. Yeah, it's out by the track. So. Yeah, we didn't have one here. We went down to Ohio State. We used to have climbing ropes. Yeah. We just climbed up the rope. So, right there is your bench press. This is a, that's an airplane hanger there. So you put your hand inside. Look at that. It's something about scale, 19 inches. Let's go on down the hallway and see what else we can find. Oh my God! That's your buddy, right? Ronnie Kirk. <laughs> yeah, he's got here. Yeah, this is uh, Rosanna Ronald Ronnie, Kirk. Ronald Kirk, 1935 1977 jazz phenomenon. Oh Ronald my Kirk in Columbus, Ohio, attended OSSB 1941 to 1953. Wow, boy, that whoever, boy, someone did a good job on this. John A. Barnes. Uh, minister, He's a minister, wasn't minister he? Minister in the United States Methodist Church for 38 yeah, years. Yeah, John Barnes. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember John Barnes. Roger Hemlinger. Oh, yeah. OSSB. Yeah. From oh. 1944 to 1990. Boy. Inspired students to seek a career in piano tuning. Yeah, he was into that piano tuning. Over here. Wow, the old pipe boy. I love to do the sound of the pipe organ. Sometimes they'd have it. We used to have morning services. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we used to have uh, chapel services in the morning. Was it every day? Or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're Friday, they'd have, and then somebody would read the scripture and have a prayer. Yeah. It'd be a thought for the day, and then we'd sing another hymn. Yeah. And if there were any announcements, uh, and then we'd go to class. We had a stand that was down by, you know, when you come in the. There's a. When you come in the front door, when you come up the top of the hill and you have the left turn. This is probably like that. You go up the front door and make a left turn. Then it went down, you went down to the cottage at B3. Yeah, all the B cottages. B2, 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 B1. When you were here, did they do cafeteria lines or was it family style? Kind of like you'd go in, you'd line up the door, and you'd go in and sit down at different tables. And had weight and weight on you. Gotcha. Family style. Yeah, yeah, family style. We used to have what they call the night. And that meant you had to go out and when I explained it to you, like if you did something bad, uh, matron might say, okay, you got a night tonight. Well, and that meant you had to go to your room right after dinner or the evening meal. We used to call supper. Yeah. And uh, you could do your homework and stuff like that, but you were not allowed to have, other kids were not allowed to come in there and talk to you. If they went in that room, they had to go in to get something out of their locker or to get something. If they were caught talking to you, if somebody walked in there and catch them, then they'd get a night. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. 
I used to help clean the cottages. I'd be down, I was on the work crew. I got over it. And then we vacuum the floor, clean out the, the uh, laboratory, the workstations, commodes, different things, working windows. They got in there with me. Sometimes I thought they were being rough, but uh, I'm glad they did. If you're feeling down, and uh, Lord knows there were many years, many years when I was down, but I decided with help, I decided to fight. Do the same thing. Follow your dream. While Larry was visiting OSSB, he made two presentations to some of our students, one being Mr. Grimm and my 10th grade career class. And we're going to take a listen to some of that right now. It's my island, guys. Caleb's island? Caleb's island? I don't think so, guys. No. Yeah. I'm Larry Smith, and I'd just like to express my appreciation for being allowed to come here to talk to you all today. I was born in 1938 in Marion, Ohio, and at six months, I was abandoned overnight on the doorsteps of the Marion County Children's Home, the orphanage, a county orphanage at that time. And early life was not easy. Uh, it was, uh, my health was bad. Uh, I was very malnourished. and. Uh, even though the, the, the home, you know, they try to feed you, food wasn't all that great. <laughs> but uh, you had a certain amount of time to eat in it. And if you weren't done, you had to get up and leave the table anyway. They had very strict rules. No talking was allowed at the table. We had to eat in silence. And they had uh, stairs, you know, we had a basement, and you go up to the first floor, where the dining rooms were, there's some other offices up there, employees' offices, and where the case workers and the people came out during the week to do their work. And then you had a big dining room. But you had to line up on the stairs. Boys could not walk with the girls, and they weren't even allowed to look at each other. We were going up the steps or down, vice versa. They were not too kind, and, uh, you know, we were beaten often, and uh, certain things weren't done right. You heard about it. And if you uh, uh, had certain problems, I know uh, there was a problem of bedwetting, and uh, if you did that, they'd rub your face in it. Ew. And you had to wash your sheet in front of everybody. Oh, and it, it, it just got to the point where I, I, at some point in my life, I did not want to go on living. And I, I couldn't understand why I was here. It didn't feel good. I was real weak. My health was messed up. Uh, when I was uh, eight years old, and this happened in the children's home, but uh, mean people were still, were still there. I was uh, going up the steps to one of the meals, and the kids had just, uh, we had wooden banisters, and they had just uh, cleaned them and polished the banisters. And the lady tells me to take my hand off the banister, and uh, she says, these banisters, well, you know, what does she think a banister's for? She's standing right next to me. Uh, they got me in the front of the line instead of having the kids walk with me. Of course, I was getting around pretty good, but I needed that banister, that's what it's there for. Yeah. Well, I didn't take my hand off from it. And all of a sudden, I, I felt boom, I got, boom, right in my left ear. And she popped the left eardrum. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, just like hitting, a, just like taking a paper bag and popping it when you blow it up. And the, uh, that ear was never the same. It healed, rebroke, had ear infections. Uh, the last time it actually broke was in 76, and it rehealed. At that time, the doctors here in Dayton didn't think it would reheal. But I never had to have surgery, and uh, I woke up, I was at a friend's, I woke up one morning and uh, yawned, and the hearing popped right back in. In 1944, I started attending Ohio State School for the Blind here. It was, at that time, it was downtown Columbus, Main and Parsons Avenue. And we moved out here in 52. I uh, never will forget it. It was, uh, uh, things had changed a lot since then. I went to school here. I did not have a good time, because uh, like I said, I, it was health it was bad. Uh, it didn't feel like eating. If you can believe it, I actually dreaded going to the table. And I was afraid I'd get sick, and then if I got, uh, if I would uh, throw up or something, then I would be punished. Uh, and so I just dreaded going to the table, and I'd pick at the food. And uh, when I started school, it was uh, kind of rough only because of those conditions. The matrons here were nice to me. I mean, I, I had no problem with that. Uh, I remember uh, 
one time, and I'd like to tell a little story because it was pretty funny. I'd been in school for a while, and of course we had so many in a bedroom. I think there was like uh, five kids in most of the rooms, and uh, one of the kid, uh, rooms had, or at least two of them had two people in the room. Well, there was this kid in my room named Larry Clay, and he had a big wooden truck. And of course we had the big ceiling lights, and uh, I could see light then. And my, uh, what I wanted to do, I wanted to take the wooden truck and I wanted to see if I could knock that light shade off on the first try. <laughs> well, guess what? I took that truck and threw it and glass went everywhere. Mission accomplished. <laughs> I got out of that room and went down to the playroom and some of the kids said, oh, you don't like glass? And I pretend like I didn't know anything about it. And uh, I said, yeah, I wonder what that was. <laughs> so we, we had dinner, and then after uh, the evening meal, uh, Susie Pierce, who was a matron at that time for our division, took care of the smaller kids, she puts her hands on my shoulder, she grabs me, she says, thought you got away with it, didn't you? <laughs> said, who do you think cleaned up the glass? You <laughs> didn't say nothing. You go, to, you, you go to the sewing room, and so I had to bend over. She gave me several swats with a paddle. <laughs> and then I got sent to bed. I, uh, uh, and it was also the same night. Now, the Downtown Lions Club, I don't know if they still do that or not, but back when I was in school, the Downtown Lions Club always threw a Christmas party at Christmas time. Yeah, we do that. Different they, Lions they still Club. still have that? Yeah, different Lions Club, but we still do the Christmas party. Well, that's great. And you could, they give you two choices. You could uh, choose what, and you get one of the two choices. You could ch uh, choose two gifts, something you wanted for Christmas, and you get one, one or the other. Yeah. Well, that night, when I broke the light, the matron came in with the supervisor, who was Mr. Ryan at that time. And he says, now, Larry, he says, what do you want for Christmas? And before I could say anything, she says, he wants a stone to break the light. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, why do I need a stone when Larry Clay's wooden truck did the job? <laughs> well, anyway, he says to me, he says, well, Larry, I'll take your order, but Santa Claus just might not be talking to you. <laughs> of course, being a kid, you know, you're a little scared about that. Let's see, how old was I? Nine, ten years old? somewhere around in there, but uh, anyways, I had a, I did get uh, something for Christmas that year. And here is William and Chantel with their retelling of the story of Icarus and by Dallas. The island of Creek lived King Minus. He had a pet miniature. It had the head of a bull on a pooing body. He invited the Dallas to build a maze for the Minotaur because he loved that monster and wanted it to have a beautiful home. The Dallas also brought his son Icarus with him to help. The Dallas built a moons that you could get lost in. The king and Minotaur were very happy with his work. One day, some Greek children came and killed the Minotaur and took the princess. This angered King Minos. He was so mad. He wanted to punish someone for death of his pet and his daughter being taken away. King Minas put the Dallas in an outside jail with no way to escape. They noticed birds flying in and out of their prison and Dallas made two pair of wings. They would fly out. Now son, don't fly too close to the sun or the wax will melt and your wings will fall apart. They flew out of their cage and went high and high. Icarus, calm down. You are flying too 
Hi. Okay. Aquarius was having too much fun, and before he knew it, he was too close to the sun. The wax melted down to the sea for Aquarius. The Dallas flew toward land alone. When I was eight years old, a lady came to this school, and I still refer to her as my angel. She brought hope to me. She was uh, a woman who was a nurse. Uh, God rest her soul. She lived to be a hundred years old, wow. and had a good life. She'd been in uh, around the country, and she came to our school, and she took an interest in me, and she started taking me to some of her doctors to try to find out what was wrong and. Uh, and uh, they started me on vitamins, and it was, uh, I used to do things to get her aggravated, and she knew how to spank you, I'll tell you that. <laughs> she used her hand, she'd smack you with her hand, but, uh, and then she would talk to you, let you know why you got the whipping, and uh, you know, why you shouldn't have done what you did. But she came to me, and it was just like things began to happen. I started getting an appetite, even though the people in the home were still there, the mean people were still in the home, we stayed here in those days. You had to go home for Christmas and summer. Now, you could stay for Easter and Thanksgiving. They had uh, programs for people that, for whatever reason, couldn't get home. And uh, so I spent a lot of Thanksgivings and Easter's here at school. But they had, like I said, good programs. They provide good meals, your traditional turkey dinner. And uh, at Easter time, they had the Easter eggs. And, you know, sometimes they'd try to get a... Uh, Easter egg hunt together. That wasn't always. Uh, <laughs> and now they, I guess now you can uh, find stuff. They have sound devices. But uh, I enjoyed school uh, after things got better. Now, in the winter of uh, the year I turned 13, something happened. I got a letter from the children's home from the staff that was uh, operating it, and they said they were going to be leaving, and they said that we'd be getting new staff. I started jumping up and down, clapping my hands, and I thought, at last, I said, can it really be? Can it be? Maybe we'll get some good treatment. And uh, apparently was... what had happened, two boys were beaten, and uh, they drew the blood so the kids ran away, and they were found. Uh, they were taken to the police station. Uh, that started an uh, investigation, and to make a long story short, the staff got fired. This, this was his orphanage where he stayed? This is the orphanage where he was staying in Marion, Ohio. So the summer I turned 13, uh, that, that's when the Whites, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Eugene White took over the home. And also a couple other people, Bill and uh, I can't think of uh, his wife's name, but the Giblins, the Whites and the Giblins took over the home. And uh, I had an attitude, uh, you know, uh, I was always complaining about how bad I had it and all that. And one day, early in that summer, Mr. White called me in the office and he said, Larry, he says, you and I need to have a nice talk. And he says, and here's what we're going to talk about. I know you didn't have it easy in this place, and I know you were mistreated, and some of these other kids were too, but you have an attitude, and I'm going to help you with that. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you, see, they, up until that time, the old employees of the home, the ones that uh, ended up getting fired, they would not let me do anything. And other kids were working, and I got the impression, when I got older, I got the impression that maybe the reason I wasn't getting along with these other children was due to the fact that uh, I didn't have to do anything, and I thought I was trying to get out of work. So uh, the school had told uh, the people at the home, give this, give this guy work to do, give him something to do. So I got to start helping the kids. But uh, in the meantime, before this ever happened, there was one point uh, when the old staff was still in the home, I wanted to help a kid wash the windows. So we were in, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was a living room or what, but we were in one of the rooms and uh, I helped him with the window. Well, the superintendent at that time came in to inspect it. And up in the right-hand corner, there was one little spot, just one little, I mean, you know, no big deal. Well, to him, it was a big deal. He beat that kid real good, and he, and he uh, got on me. Well, he beat the kid because the kid let me help him with the window, and he got on me for not getting a spot. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself, I thought that kid would hate me, and uh, I talked to him later. He says, no, I hate the people that beat us, and he had a few choice names. And I, 
But uh, later on, when the whites took over, I got to help with the window, and Mr. White, and, and left a little mark up there, and he says, well, he says, just wipe it off, it's no big deal. And that turned out to be the beginning of uh, heaven. He took, a, he took a hell and turned it into a heaven. But the Christmas before he took over, I never will forget it, uh, I hated going there for Christmas. I hated going there, period, because those people were there. And the kids were uh, packing up. They were getting their suitcases packed to go home for Christmas. And the one lady who worked here at the school, one of the employees, came to me and she says, well, Larry, she says, you don't look too happy. She says, uh, the children are packing up and going home for Christmas. And I distinctly remember looking at her and saying, yeah, they're going home. I'm going to hell. She told me years later, when, we, uh, when I got older and I got to work on the work crew and, and she was in one of the cottages, she said, when, you, when I saw the look on your face and when you told me that, she says, I would have given anything if I could have taken you home that Christmas. And I want to tell you something else. Me and some of the staff used to talk about you when you were little, and we didn't think you'd live to be a teenager. But, you know, I'm glad we got somebody up above that cares because he sent the right people at the right time. All right, this is Zach and Bryce retelling Apollo and the Oracle. Apollo wanted an oracle to predict the future. It wouldn't be very funny at all if the oracle was too specific. But the oracle had to tell the truth, but not be too specific. One day a king came to see the oracle. The king asked the oracle who would win the next battle. The oracle said that a good king will win the battle, uh, the next battle. That is what the king wanted to hear, and he left many gifts. That king was killed and lost in the battle. <laughs> that king did not very well. And uh, that was beginning, here I turned 13, that's when I tell people, that's when I really began to live. My grades start coming up, uh, uh, I got healthy, I got a tremendous appetite, and uh, I was still seeing the doctors, and this lady got to see me, uh, she lived in Johnstown, Ohio, but the, uh, the lady, her name was uh, Miss Dis Bennett, Indus Dis Bennett. Uh, I think she spelled I-N-D-U-S, I Indus, then D-I-S-S-B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -T. Wonderful lady. And she stuck with me through over the years, even after I graduated. And uh, during the year of my graduation, she got me a commencement suit. It's a real nice suit, and she was there for graduation. And it, I was, uh, just felt really good about it. And then when I got out of school, I lived in Columbus for a while. I just stayed here. I lived in a rooming house on East Town Street. It was called the Trimmer Manor. Real nice place. They served room, they had room and board. You got three meals a day. And uh, they clean your room for you. You know, you didn't have to worry about that. I lived. I had a room up on the third floor. I started working in a. Well, they tried me in a broom factory. I worked over at the. Uh, um, I forget what building it was now, but they had uh, the lower part that you made brooms. And then you know, once you learn how to do that, the state would set you up in your home. I guess they still do that, as far as I know. I don't know if anybody even gets into that anymore. But uh, that didn't work out too good. I itched too bad. That stuff got in the pores of my skin. And I said, I can't handle this. So they sent me upstairs right above there, the brush factory. Well, I was up there in 1962. It was uh, late April. It was uh, early, uh, late April. May was almost here. And the counselor I had came in the room there, and she said, Larry, she said, I got some news for you. You want to take it standing up or sitting down? And I said, well, it depends on what it is. <laughs> and uh, she said, how would you like to go to Dayton, Ohio? There's a darkroom position open. You've had your training, and it's, uh, you'll be working at an osteopathic hospital. And I said, fine, let's go. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So that's how I came to Dayton. And uh, I started that job in the month of May. Uh, I forget the actual date, 12th or 15th or something. But anyways, I uh, got training. in the. Uh, I'd already had training, like I said earlier, from uh, a guy who worked at White Cross Hospital. And I, I got that training before I worked in the brush factory, so it was just a matter of waiting for an opening. And when I came to Dayton, I lived at the YMCA for a while, and uh, uh, they had somebody, uh, a counselor, they'd pick me up and take me to work until I learned how to take the buses. Well, then eventually uh, I moved out of the Y and got a place close to the hospital. 
and I could walk down to the corner, cross the street, and walk back up. And there was a church on the corner I went to. It was the uh, Forest Avenue Presbyterian Church. And uh, I loved going to that church. I had a real nice minister down there. And they wanted me to sing in the choir, so I tried out for that and did all right. And uh, then eventually, of course, uh, I moved into another apartment behind the hospital. But things went well. I learned how to uh, develop the films, uh, did well with it. Uh, we had hand developing then. But later, we got automatic processors, and that was the best thing that ever happened. As I told you earlier, we didn't have to get our fingers down the solutions, get that junk all over our clothes. And I used to go home stinking with that uh, chemicals. <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed the work, and then, of course, uh, I had a boss, and uh, for some reason, he did not like visually impaired people, and probably other forms of affliction. Now, I don't know what his problem was. Uh, he definitely had one. Because <laughs> when you act like that, and, and I was doing my best to do my best, because I wanted to, I was just doing my best to make sure the work got out. And that uh, he tried getting me fired. Like He went to one of the radiologists, and he said, that blind guy doesn't know what he's doing. And he said, yeah, he does, because we know he had training. We checked his records. And we know he did well in training. He does know what he's doing. Well, I got to talk to, uh, got to know some of the doctors, and uh, they told me if I had any trouble, just let them know, which I did. Well, during that time, that first year there, I worked six days a week. And a year later, one of the secretaries from our department was over talking to personnel director, and uh, the question was asked, how many days does Larry work? And uh, Kathy Longo, she was a head secretary in radiology, and she said, he works six days a week. Well, the boss, uh, a personnel director got to looking at that, and he said, well, he's only getting paid for five. So he got the back pay for me, and that lady came over there, and she called me out of the dark room. I never will forget it. She said, Larry. I said, good morning, Kathy. How you doing? She said, fine. She says, I got something for you. Here's the back pay that that so-and-so screwed you out of. And he looked him, and she looked him right in the face. And she said, <laughs> it was over 300 some dollars. Wow. A lot of money back then. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and uh, a whole year, and, and uh, instead of putting me down for six days, he's only putting me down for five. Mm. But it got turned in. See, he couldn't get away with that because uh, I would clock in and out. You know, he taught me how to clock in and out. And I don't know why he thought he could fool that, but uh, it didn't work. And when I went back in the doctor, Mikey, hear him out there raving. He says, oh, I can't stand that woman. I like get that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, too bad, mister. You don't get away with your stuff. <laughs> In 1971, in the fall of that year, another blind fella came, and I got to train him. And, of course, Leo was still there, the one he wasn't getting along with. And uh, <coughs> I heard him tell one of his friends, he says, Oh, God, now we got another one to contend with. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I told Tim about it. He says, I, I don't care. He says, we're here to work. Well, during break, uh, you know, between uh, lunch and uh, 1 o'clock or sometimes a little before lunch, it would get real slow. So my friend and I, we'd sit in the dark room and share a cigarette. Of course, we made sure that there wasn't any films or anything exposed, and we'd share a cigarette. Well, our boss came in one time, and of course, he smoked cigars. And uh, he comes in there with his cigar, I could smell it, and he says, You're not supposed to be smoking in here, gentlemen. And Tim says, Well, you got a cigar. So he just turned around and walked out the door. <laughs> then another time, he was uh, lifting a lid on the processor. When you fed a film in the machine, once it got in the developer, if you took the lid off and that film got exposed to the light, it would come out fog. Well, a few minutes later, we kept hearing him playing with the lids, and uh, a few minutes later, he says, uh, Gentlemen, we're getting fog film out here. And Tim, first thing he says, Well, quit lifting the lid up and down on the processor. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that put an end to that, and I don't know why he thought, but, uh, you know, he ended up getting fired. Uh, apparently, what he was doing, he was posing as a salesman. He was taking a film from our stock and selling it to doctor's offices and pocketing the money. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but somehow they found out about it, and he got his butt kicked out of there. And when we heard that, uh, my friend, we th he threw a big party. Boy, we had a, <laughs> we had a big time. He threw a big party. <laughs> Smoking in the film room, right? <laughs> no, we had it this we had it at their house, but uh, boy, we had a good time. And we said, I'm glad they got rid of that so and so. <laughs> but he came in the dark room one morning. Uh, this is why we were still working with him, and this is before Tim was even hired, and we were still working in the old dark room. And he came in there and he says, "Well, 
I have to admit, you do good work, but I hate your damn guts. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, you told me that. Now, I would like, I have a question for you. Give me a reason. I said, it's my understanding, if you hate somebody, you gotta have a, I'd say, a pretty darn good reason. I said, can you provide me with that reason? He gets up and walks out, that's the reason. He didn't say anything to me, he's got up and walked out. And I'm thinking to myself, he has no reason except for the fact that maybe he just can't stand uh, people who are uh, handicapped. Maybe he feels like they can't do anything, but he already knows, he already knows I can do the work, because he even commended me on that, but he said he ate my gut, but he couldn't tell me why. Well, that didn't matter. I mean, after a while, I just said the heck with it. I got work to do here. At the end of the day, I could go to the Y, work out, get down, and uh, I used to jump rope a lot when I started going to the Y. And then they put in a running track, Well, then I got interested in running. In the meantime, of course, Tim was in the, you know, he uh, hadn't, he didn't start until 72, or fall 71, excuse me. And, uh, but he worked out, you know, we got trained, and then what we would do, we scheduled like uh, one day I'd work, or one week I'd work five days a week and get Saturday and Sunday off. Then the following week, he, uh, it would go to, t uh, he would work. Then I'd get, if I had to work Saturday, I got Wednesday off. <clears throat> of course, I always hated working Saturday, you know, so. <laughs> This is Alyssa and Troy's retelling of the Magic Rocks. Ares is the Greek god of war. Ares is a spirit of disagreement. They both travel together through the country looking for arguments which would lead to bloodshed. Ares was tall, handsome, and mean. He was self-centered and no one liked him very much. Ares helped Ares bring the feelings of pain, panic, and famine wherever they went. Ares liked to visit the field north of ancient Greece. It bordered Macedonia. During one battle, Athena threw a rock at Ares and it knocked him out cold. The people thought the rocks were magic. The people wanted to be rid of Ares and Eris. You can't grow crops with fighting going on in your field. So the people gathered a big stack of rocks. Another battle began. Someone picked up a big rock and hit Ares in the head when he was not looking, and it knocked him out cold. The people put Ares in a vase, putting, put a lid on top of it, trapping him in. Ares was in that vase for a long time. He would have to stay there forever, but someone had to brag. The god Hermes heard of this and rescued Ares. Ares did not say thank you because he was still mean. Ares never came back to that field again thinking there may be some truth to the tale of the magical rocks. Then in 1968, they built a running track at the Y. I believe it was when they, I think it was 68, they put that in. And I started doing laps around the track because before that, I'd go swimming at the Y. I would uh, jump rope, do cow settings, you know, your push-ups, set-ups, all that the good stuff. But I got interested just a little bit, and I would jog around the track. It was a small track. You had to go around 28 times for a mile. Whoa. So you're going around in circles, and it would change every 15 minutes. You had a buzzer; it would ring. You change directions, so you go clockwise 15, counterclockwise 15, back and forth, back and forth. Well, later, of course, they expanded the track, and I think they changed that. What they did then, they'd have a sign up like one day you'd uh, counterclockwise, the next day you'd go clockwise. So that worked out good. But in the meantime, I meet this fellow who uh, watches me run. His name's Bob Anderson. Very nice guy, and uh, he said, hey, he says, uh, you did his laps pretty good. He said, uh, you think uh, you want to be a runner? And I said, well, not really. I said, it's not in the cards. 
we sat down in the chair out in the hallway by the track, and he's talking to me, and he says, uh, I'll, bet you, I'll bet you'd be a good runner. And at that time, I didn't, uh, I was just thinking the last already did, and I was going to drop. <laughs> but he says, no, I, I really think you'd, you could make a good runner. And I said, ah, uh, something I'd have to think about. I don't think it's in the cards. So he offers me a ride home, and uh, so I took a ride home, and he says, now, can I expect you down here tomorrow? And I said, not if I can help it. And he said, well, you got one problem. I know where you live. I'll come and get you. <laughs> he laughed about it. And I kidded him. I said, well, I said, hey, come and get me. I can save bus fare. <laughs> I don't have to spend the money on the bus. How much did it cost to ride the bus back then? Was oh, it a dime? Yeah, a dime or 20, 15, 20 cents or something uh, like that. It was, it was, and then, of course, later you could buy tokens and stuff like that. And I would get the tokens. But... Uh, <laughs> From then on, I found myself becoming a runner, and I got to where I actually enjoyed it. So uh, I met another fellow named Harry Bradbury. He was uh, already at the Y. He was a physical director down there. He ran exercise class, and he and I started running together. Well, you know, I forgot to bring that belt. But uh, we came up with a device. Uh, it's a, we started out with leather belts, and of course that didn't work out too good. But what they did, they riveted a handle, kind of like a garage door handle in the back of the belt or some of them might be a bathroom, uh, bathroom door handle. It weren't very big. And the first belt had one on each side. Well, we uh, discovered that that wasn't necessary. The leather rotted out, the handles rusted. So I now use a scuba diving belt. What running, uh, I, Steve and I get together and we go walking once a week over at the, uh, the uh, mall in town and country in Dayton. Uh, we go walking over there and uh, he puts the belt on. What the runner does, they put the belt on and I just hold the handle. And uh, I, the belt is kind of on the back side so we don't get our feet tangled up. So you can either use it on, uh, with your right hand or you can use it with your left hand, whichever side you want to be on. Mm. And this works out real good. So we get together once a week for that. It's just been an interesting, uh, nice long trip. I was in the Boy Scouts for a long time. I don't know, do you still got a scout troop here at school? You... Actually, we haven't had one up here, uh, but we're starting something shortly because i know they used to have girl scouts boy scouts yeah and, uh, yeah it's uh what is that called uh adventure crew is that the same thing as that or what is yeah, that adventure that? crew it's related to scouting um it's sort of sort of parallel scouting yeah but i'm not sure if it's what? sanctioned by bsa or not boy scouts yeah we yeah. used to have uh cub scout here too the, yeah. when i was little i, I don't even know if i don't remember if i belonged to that or not but i was in the boy scouts and uh got different merit badges and earned the God and Country Award. And uh, the summer of 1957 was the greatest summer of my life because it was that year I got to go to the Boy Scout Jamboree, which was held in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And there was about 50,000 scouts plus people from Canada. And uh, it was a great experience. We were out there for about 10, 12 days, and, uh, trading gear. Uh, you know, we had trading gear people brought. And the Marion County Lions Club sponsored me. They paid my way so I could go to the Jamboree. So uh, we had a good time there and got to know some people and got some trading gear. So in December of that year of 57, I got to get a day out of school so I could go to the Marion uh, Lions Club for a luncheon and to give them a talk on the Jamboree and show them some of the stuff I got and yeah. tell them some of the stuff I did. We had a great time. Now, did you guys do... Uh... You know, with all the green space that's, that's up here at the school, especially back then, did you guys do camp outs down by the ravine and things like that? We'd go elsewhere for camping, uh, Camp Lazarus and uh, some okay. of the other places. I forget where some of those places are, but we'd go to Camp Lazarus and camp out in the wintertime. And uh, I'm sure you had heavy blankets. I remember one time some of us didn't want to get up. Out of, uh, it was in the morning, and they were trying to get us to get up. But we were in the sleeping bags, and uh, we didn't want to get up. There's me and some other kid. And, uh, <laughs> he said, okay, he said, I'll be back in about 10 minutes. He came back, and he threw cold water on both of us. Boy, you talk about getting up. <laughs> we got up all right. <laughs> he said, now, get with it. He said, now I got you up. Now do what else you're supposed to do. <laughs> I better not. You better... Uh, we didn't want to get back in those bags. They were kind of wet because they had that water. I'm good boy. <laughs> and next up is Mrs. Robin Finley as she talks about World Braille Day. Louis Braille's birthday was actually this past Wednesday, January 4th. But since we just came back to school on the 3rd, it was too soon. So we are having it on 
the 10th to celebrate Louis Braille's birthday. He was born in 1809 on January 4th. We're gonna have Euchre, we're gonna have Uno. That's gonna be in the, in the library. Then we're gonna have other games like board games and any kind of games that's not a card game. And then we're gonna have, then we're gonna have a, a Braille cookie decorating where you just, really it's just a snack. So you're gonna go in and there's gonna be cookies done and you're gonna make your first, um, you're gonna make the first letter of your name, I guess you could do your last name, in M&Ms. And then the last activity is kind of where you, you guys that know Braille can help the ones that don't know Braille, like, you know, learn a little bit of Braille. So we kind of like we did last year. At ninth period, we're going to have a trivia game with that spinner. And each one of the areas on that spinner is 100, 200, 500, skip or spin again. And then the categories are written too with the point values. It's either eyes or tech or braille. Um, eyes are just general questions about blindness or eyes. Just They'll be like multiple choice questions. So Mrs. Barden and Ms. Picard and I are doing those questions. The teams are going to be selected by anybody who wants to be on the trivia team putting their name in the envelope outside my door and we'll pick the teams from there. We're hoping to have two teams of six and the winning six students will all get prizes. So that is World Braille Day and the, team, the group that you're with is completely random. Yeah, because you, you ran the Boston Marathon. Well, I ran two Columbus, uh, 82 and 83. Okay. Then in 1996, it was the 100th running of the Boston Marathon. And I had the opportunity to run in it. And uh, I was picked by lottery. The, uh, the Boston, the Massachusetts Association of the Blind picked my number. Wow. Uh, we'd sent numbers in, and I got picked to run. Uh, did some training. I got picked to run that. But uh, so I got to go to Boston in 1996 and do a Boston Marathon. And it was a real nice experience. I mean, uh, the, uh, I'll tell you what, the day of the marathon, the weather was just right for it. It was perfect. Yeah. It was nice and cool, almost cold, actually. <laughs> <coughs> That's what you want when you're running. Well, yeah, you yeah. do, because sometimes when they run those, it's, it's pretty muggy. Mm. Yeah, sometimes when they've had those, it's pretty muggy. But we ran it, and my one friend, Mr. Bradbury, kept cramping, and he had to drop out eventually. And then I started getting, after all the training we got, I think probably around the 14th or 15th mile, I started getting cramps. And I says, well, I'll be damned if I'm gonna drop out. I'll find another way around this. <laughs> so what we did, we walked. And when the cramps go away, now see, Harry said his cramps never went away. But when I would start walking, my cramps would go away. So we'd take off running again. And then of course they have this hill there called Heartbreak Hill. Mm, yeah. You may have heard of it. Yep. It's Heartbreak Hill and it's a gradual, it's not a real steep hill, however. It's a long one. It's a long one. And by that time in the marathon, you're, uh, some, some of the people hit the wall, they can't go any further. Mm. And that's why they end up dropping out. That's why they call it Heartbreak Hill because that's where a lot of people, we got on that, I think it's from 15 to the 21st mile mark. That's a long hill. So it goes up. Yeah, it's a gradual. But when you're hill. when you've ran, then you're going up that hill. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you. But I kept doing okay, cramping, doing okay, cramping. So the guy I was running with, he says, "Well, let's do one thing." Yeah. He said, "Let's do one thing. Let's at least make sure we run across that finish line." So we did. That took over five hours. I think it was five hours and twenty twenty five minutes or something like that. But mm. uh, it took me a while to run now because of all the cramping and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But I am happy to say, at least I finished it. That's right. You finished. You I finished, finished it. You were, tell about you inducted then into the Dayton Running Hall of Fame. Uh, yes, I was, uh, me and my friend Mr. Bradbury, we uh, were put in the Runner's Hall of Fame. I think it was back in 87, was it? 89. 89. Uh, he and I went into the Runner's Hall of Fame together. That is. Larry was also very fast. He was not just running, but he was a good runner. He would, he would, he had a fast pace on a lot of his runs. Yeah, I did all right. So, six thirty miles, a, a six, six and a half, miles six and a half minute races. miles, and then, yeah, that's good. I couldn't do that today, but you know, like, <laughs> I'm with you, brother. <laughs> yeah. But I had a lot of fun running, and uh, then of course now I I do a lot of uh, blood donations. I love going to the community blood center. I love helping people out because uh, 
for a while I was given whole blood. Would they take a pint every eight weeks? Yeah. And then somebody down there suggested blood products. Well, I wasn't sure what they were talking about. Like plasma. And once they explained to me plasma, platelets, I started doing that. And I've been doing that ever since. So uh, now I have been entered into the uh, Blood Donors Hall of Fame. And I forget where that's located, Steve. Did you ever? Uh, I don't know where it's at, but it's a national. It's a national. Uh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know there was such a thing. I didn't either at the time. The Blood Donors Hall of Fame. Yeah, I didn't know it. I'll tell you, Dan, I didn't know there was either. I, you how many, tell how many times you give now a year. and. Well, I, uh, I'm i up to about 343. Whew. But there are people down there that's been given over 600 times. Yeah. Of course, they've been going down. When you came time. in, I thought you looked a little pale in the face. And now oh, I know. That was your, that, <laughs> your lighting was poor. <laughs> That's for bad sure. Lighting. <laughs> That's the built-in lighting, eh? Yeah. <laughs> so you still give now uh, what, about twice every other week? Well, yeah, I go down uh, twice a month. Like, and I do platelets and plasma. Well, plasma, you can only do like once a month because it takes a while for that to build back up. Right. Platelets you can give every week. And I was doing that for a while. But now I start going every two weeks because you use up your donations. And the FDA, a drug uh, food administration, they're pretty strict on some of that stuff. So, you know, you got to be careful what you do. Right. You're allowed 24 donations in a year. Then you have to wait for days. After that, if you use up your donations, you have to wait for uh, days to roll off. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. The first time I gave was when I was 17. It was on one of those mobiles, and I started to pass out, so they raised the seat, they were raising the chair up, and I thought the bus was moving. I was like, hey, where are we going? Where are we going? I, I'm done. Taking you to the unknown, man. And my friends, got they joked me about that forever. And I, 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 sing, in the, I sing in the church choir. I, I, I love doing that. I've been with the choir 10, 15, 10, 15 20 years. And uh, we have different programs, Christmas, Easter. We do cantatas. And uh, so I enjoy that. Did you sing in the choir here at the school? I sang in the, well, when I was little, I sang in the junior chorus. And later on, I, I joined the senior chorus. Okay. Did you, I, you were in the band here as well? Yes, or? I was, as a matter of fact. I want to tell you about that. When I was here, uh, I played a B-flat clarinet. Started out with that. Eventually, I went to a bass clarinet. But uh, I'm sorry, you didn't play a brass instrument. Yeah, I know. I just didn't. <laughs> I never got into that. It would have been nice. I don't know. Why you play? <laughs> I'm a trumpet player. I was just giving you a hard time. I know. Trumpet player. Oh, yeah. right. Talk about the trumpet player that graduated from here. Oh, there was a trumpet player graduating here, Ronnie Kirk. Rasan Roland Kirk was a. Yeah. That was a guy. He was a saxophone player. And actually, I'll show you when we go to tour. There's a, the OSSB Hall of Fame. Oh, good. Yeah. So you get a chance to look yeah. at that. Yeah. But uh, that's so so clarinet, and you know that's interesting because I thought that you know the the blind school band was always a brass band until we started it back up in two thousand four two thousand five. Oh, good. Glad you got but, it going uh, again. Oh yeah, it started, broke up for a while. Huh? Yeah, after Mr. Spangler retired in eighty seven. And oh, I like Spangler. I'll tell you what. I want to tell you a story about that. When I was, uh, and of course, uh, it was still Don Wa Donald Walker was still the band director when this happened. Uh, I went out to the practice room, and somebody had given me a dog whistle. And I thought, well, I'm going to open the window. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to see if I can blow this and get the dogs in the neighborhood riled up. <laughs> and I was having a good time, man. It was working. I heard dogs barking, and pretty soon the door, I heard the door behind me open. Larry Smith, I didn't send you out here to blow a dog whistle. I sent you out here to practice your clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't read. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I could not read that music. I never was good at reading music. The way I got it, if someone played it, I could pick it up that way. Yeah. yeah. And Mr. Spangler realized that when he took over. So he told me just to go ahead. He says, just go ahead and improvise. Do what you can do. He says, uh, no one's probably going to know the difference. If you're playing the notes, you know, just follow the guy next to you or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it worked out better that way. But uh, but that was, a fun, that was the one thing in the band <clears throat> I still remember, the dog whistle. That's so funny. <laughs> how, many, how big was it back then, the band? How, how many members you guys oh, have? What do we have, 20, 25? Yeah. That's what we have. How many you got in there now? About that. Yeah, Between 15 and 25, I'm not real sure. Do you have the choruses, like senior and junior chorus? We have... Uh, we have a 
junior high. Yeah, because when I was going here, they just had a, a junior chorus, which was the younger kids, and the senior chorus, which was the high school kids. And I remember over a period of time, I, I was, uh, when I did the junior chorus, I was a soprano. Wow. Went home in the summer, came back in the fall, bass. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, yeah, and Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, she said, well, Larry, we can't use you now. You're going to have to wait till you can get in senior chorus. Because <laughs> I was still in junior high school. <laughs> so... Uh, out of this group, how many people are going to have lunch with us for the aware? Yes. Anybody in here? Leanne, you are? Okay, Larry is going to talk to us. Mr. Larry is going to talk to us at lunch. So if you have questions, kind of hold on to them. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, they wouldn't have any For Mr. Larry, so I don't make you too late for your next class. I don't Do you have a question, Kayla? No. no. Just, I, I don't, said I don't I have mind. A quick question. Where yeah. did you, you mentioned swimming. Where did you learn how to swim? Uh, I learned how to swim. At the YMCA, I went to a camp for handicap. Uh, it's called Camp Pittenger, and I went to that camp, and they they were trying to teach me how to swim. And uh, but I learned be uh, better when they helped me at the Y okay. in Dayton. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna break up for now because uh, we're gonna go and uh, tour around a little bit, and we'll let you guys go to class. Let's give uh, Mr. Larry a nice thank you. All right. Okay. Follow you. Follow your dreams. That's right. Fight for it. Go Panthers! Here we are at another conclusion of the OSSB podcast. We had lots of fun with this podcast, and we would like to thank everybody who participated in putting this together. We hope you enjoyed, because we worked so hard on this, and everybody else did. Till next time, Latrell and Andre. And Mr. Kelly. Signing out. Yum! Wow, 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 wow